Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. I'm a feminist, but we had one of my kids' school fair, and I was busy, and my husband and I had to go, and we showed up, and then the kid came up to me and said, can I have a pound? I want to go do, I don't know, splat the rat or whatever. And I, I hadn't brought any money, so I turned to my husband, and he said, I thought you had your wallet. And in front of my daughter, I said, what kind of father are you? <laughs> You know, because I feel like, as a feminist, I should be explaining to the girls that, you know, I should have had my wallet. But then, as a mother, I'm like, you know what, I take a lot of shit from these kids. <laughs> you know, even... If so, you're not there with a pound at the splatter wrap machine, what good are you? Yeah, and I mean, you're a man, have the money. Why do I have to do it? I'm, I'm a feminist, but I woke up yesterday morning and went into the bathroom mirror. And the thing is, I, I don't really have a lot of gray hair. I get the odd gray hair, but I don't have gray hair. And I mean, that's no big deal. It's no big deal to have gray hair or not have gray hair. I'm a feminist. Why would that matter to anybody? Gray hair is just a, something that happens as you get older, but I don't have gray hair. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love seeing gray hair on other women. I don't, it's nothing wrong with gray hair. And I actually enjoy, I think a you know, silver haired woman is just beautiful. But I looked in the mirror and I saw the strongest, whitest hair and it was just so prominent. And I thought, oh my God, that's the future. And it's starting today. And my hair is going to be like Miss Havisham by Wednesday. <laughs> and then I realized it was one of my cat's whiskers. <laughs> and I thought, thank God. I'm a feminist, but every time I hear about a really wealthy woman getting a divorce because she had an affair and she wanted out, and her ex-husband still gets half, I think the justice system is rigged. I do know what you mean, you know. because my friend divorced a man and she had a really big, fancy job, and he didn't have that much money, and it was all flipped, everything, money, children, everything, and I was like, well, that doesn't seem fair, and I was like, oh my God, if this was a man. But it's not, so no. fine. Exactly. Now, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm a feminist, but my flatmate Steve, who is a Syrian refugee, he's very, very good looking. And when people meet him, they always say to me, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, he's so good looking, he's so good looking. 
And he has a sort of charisma about him as well. You might, some of you might know him. He does Grown Up Land. And he was on the Palladium show. And the other day we were talking about what would get Theresa May to change policy on refugees because she's creating a hostile environment. And I said, Steve, Steve, we're meant to be doing the show at the House of Commons. If I could get you an audience or even just a brush in the corridor with Theresa May, <laughs> would you flirt with her? Because I genuinely think she would be powerless against your charms. And it would change policy for thousands of displaced people. And he said, I don't think that's the way we should do this. <laughs> and I said, why? Because women have had to do this kind of shit for years. I was like, you get in there and you flirt with our prime minister. You flirt with our right-wing septuagenarian, fairly scary at times prime minister. And you do your bit for the refugees of the world. And he said, I'm leaving now. <laughs> I see he is objectively a very handsome man, but I feel like he's like my brother, or more often recently, and I'm not old enough to be his mother, but I do feel that he's like a grown-up son. Like, I'm proud of him. Like, I see my mother is proud of my brother. Like, I'm like, yes, isn't he handsome? Isn't he wonderful? And sometimes, like, a gay man, or even a straight man, or a straight woman will say to me, oh, my God, oh, so fit. And I'll go, yeah, don't you just want to leave him property in your will? <laughs> That's genuinely how I feel about him. Well, uh, in the spirit of honesty, I have met him, mm. and that is not how I feel about him. <laughs> I'm a feminist, mm. but when my elder two children fight and my daughter hits my son, it's because it's emotion. And when he even thinks about crossing the room to maybe tap her, it's a canceled phone contract, a year off of iPad, and you're cleaning all the toilets for the rest of your life. I'm a feminist, but today I saw a video. It was a short film of Comics for Calais, and this is when uh, half a dozen comics and I went to Calais to work with refugees and then do a show for the volunteers in the evening, and we had a big fundraiser here at the Union Chapel, and we Skyped between the two shows, and it was an incredible night. And this amazing guy called Tom has made a little 12-minute doc to go on the internet about our experiences and to encourage other people to come out and to volunteer there and also perform out there. And I watched it, and it was really beautiful. I found it very, very moving, and actually it made me a bit tearful. But I looked so bad in one of the scenes, because I'd been doing actual work. You have to take that into account. We had to be in the warehouse like 8 a.m., and I'd been like doing work, like labor, like manual labor. And then we'd gone out to meet the refugees, and you know that was kind of upsetting, because they just had all their tents stolen and stuff by the police. And we came back, and I had no makeup on, and the lighting in this, it was like we were in a shack. The lighting was so bad, but I did not ask Tom to edit it out, but not because I was saying something important and poignant about refugees, but because I thought, that way I don't look vain. <laughs> I thought people are going to watch this and go, wow, what a humanitarian. <laughs> she will let us see her with no makeup in the worst light, and it's just, I don't know what it was, but I look like a squirrel blowing up a balloon. I'm like, oh, it's so bad. I look like I'm dying. It looks like Amnesty International should be out there Helping to save you. me. Yeah. 
Live from the Old Vic in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Cindy V, and very special guests Juliet Stevenson and Rosalind Brody, talking about mothers and daughters. something in your ear. Would you like a cup of tea? We'll see. Or some juice in the glass. I'll pass. My room's such a mess. No stress. Oh, I'm such a blabbering fool. Oh, oh you're, you're so, so beautiful. beautiful. This feels like a musical. God, you're so fit. I can't believe it. Can I give you a kiss? But only if you're okay with this. I'm sorry if this sounds corny, but you make me feel so Happy. <laughs> I just want to pleasure you, but only if we want it to. I just want to pleasure you, but only if we thought this through. I just want to pleasure you, let's make like Sims and just woohoo. I just want to pleasure you tonight. If it's all right. right. Your bra undo. For you. Babe, are you sure? Yes, more. I'm loving your touch so much. Can you tell me if it's too much? Sorry about the hair. Don't care. Does this feel all right? Not quite. How about now? Oh, wow. Together we will learn how. Tell, tell me what you want me to do to you. Oh, you're so beautiful. This feels like a musical. God, you're so fit. I can't believe it. Can we go all the way? Oh, baby, that's okay. I'm sorry this sounds corny, but you make me feel so good. I just want to pleasure you, but only if you want it to. I just want to pleasure you, but only if we thought this through. I just want to pleasure you, can I Netflix and chill with you? I just want to pleasure you tonight. If it's all right. Do you want to go again? Maybe give me a chance to recover. <laughs> that was James and Holly from Peer Productions. Give them a big round of applause. James and Holly, can you tell us a little bit about where that song comes from and where we can see more of you? Yes, of course. So that is Consent Song from a sex ed musical by Peer Productions called Losing It. And it will be showing at the International Youth Arts Festival in Kingston on the 7th and 8th of July. Brilliant. And that central song is Consent. Consent Song. Well, we loved it and we look forward to seeing you at the end of the show. Big round of applause for James and Holly.
This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Sindhu V, how are you? I am very well. How is everyone else? They're feeling it tonight. Um, Many of them are happy to be here nursing their sunburns. (laughs) That's what happens to you guys. That seems very... Yeah, are you doing smug Asian there? No, I, it's not even smug. I mean, you know, my kids are half white. So, I mean, I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, we need sun cream. I'm like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> well, funnily enough, that's our topic for this evening is mothers and daughters. But I'm delighted to hear already that you have such a nurturing and bonded relationship with your children <laughs> that you mock them for needing sunscreen. I mean, I don't want to point this out, but you did sleep with a white man. And so it's not their fault they need sunscreen. No, I'm not saying it's their fault. I just think it's funny. <laughs> Yes, but I do put sun cream on them. I'm a very responsible parent. I do. I just always have a little <laughs> to myself. Is there anything else you mock them for? I don't mock them. I just I find mean, something. I, yeah, but find the anything visible. They mock me. Yesterday, or day before yesterday, I was telling my teenager off, and he said, okay, okay, salty boy. <laughs> and I was like, what is that? What is salty boy? It means like if... We, Does someone know what salty boy is? It's basically if you're being sort of annoyed and, you know, and irritating and irritated, then you're very salty. Mm. And I guess I'm a salty boy. I don't know. (laughs) But did you find the cheek or the misgendering that you had a problem with? (laughs) Look, I have a teenage son. There's no nuance. I mean, there's, I was like, first of all, he's speaking to me very good. Second of all... (laughs) I, there was, it was one of those things that was all so confusing that I immediately stopped being angry and I was like, what? What is that? Mm. And he just grinned at me. Because actually, you know, he, he very rarely calls me mum. Uh, he refers to me as bruv. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I've learned by watching the World Cup with him. By the way, Germany won 2-1. Um, by watching the World Cup, that the word brother, which is the root word of these words, but there's different ways. So like, if it's just something, he says, oh, bruv. But then, if you're really excited about something, you say, come on, bro. Mm. And if someone's irritating you, you say, brah. Mm. So I've learned this. All you have an extraordinary teenage lexicon. I do. I, uh, do. I uh, do. Do your daughters call you mum or mummy? Uh, yeah, they do. The middle one, she's a teenager, and she has great phrases like, in the daily. Because she what? told me, why do you have to tell me off about my clothes in the daily? In the day. In the daily, which is apparently daily, but you have to say in the daily because you also have to say like after everything. Oh my. In the daily. It means every day, does it? Yes. Oh, in the daily. You know, here here are all my cousins in India thinking that my kids speak great English. We live here. It's like, no. No. She's calling every day in the daily. They just speak in a number of registers. Do you know the sort of little internet slang if they're talking, like P-A-W, do you know what that means? If they're talking to a friend on WhatsApp? First of all, I would not be aware. When they're around me, I'm like, put down your phone, put down your phone. So I don't know what they're doing on their phone. In front of me, they're like, okay, here, but then they're only in front of me like a few minutes of the day. Uh, And then the rest of it, I don't know what they're doing. Okay, so if you see them say P-A-W, does anyone else know what that means? No, parents are watching. So if somebody's saying, like, oh, do you want to meet me for a, you know, I don't know. Do you want to meet me for some ketamine behind a bike shed? I don't know what it is that young people do now. 
shall we have some ketamine behind a bike shed? I mean, that's where we had to have everything. It was good enough for us. I've never had ketamine, and I, I really don't want to, because they say it's a horse tranquilizer, and that just sounds terrifying to me. Dude, I just... I, you know, I've, I'm tall, but not, you know, I don't have the... I don't have the girth of a horse. I mean, I I'm, so, I'm a solid girl, don't get me wrong. And I, I shouldn't say girl, but I think it's all right to say it about yourself, yes, isn't it? it? Yes, yes, Collo yes. It's a colloquial, like yes, the girls. Yes, it's fine. I think a single... This is my feeling on this. Girls, plural, fine. It's a girls' night out. Girls, singular, no. You don't say, I gave the change to the girl in the shop. No. You say, the woman in the shop. But are we all having a cocktail, girls? That's my personal line. <laughs> girls must be plural, but I was being dry then when I was talking about myself as a girl because, obviously, I'm 29. <laughs> and that laugh was too loud. That was meant to be a medium-sized chuckle, not a roar. Shall we begin the show? Yes, I just want to say my dad still, he, he calls me and says, Hello, girl, how are you doing? Aww. And it's the only time anyone calls me girl where I just think, Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, he also calls my mother old girl, which is hilarious because when she heard him, she doesn't really pay attention to him. She can't really stand him, let's be honest. But uh, she doesn't really pay attention. Once he said, oh, yeah, I don't want to say that in front of the old girl. I think he thinks he lives in a PG Woodhouse book, you know? <laughs> she said, I don't want to say that in front of the old girl. And my mother from the kitchen said, I might be an old girl, but you are a stupid idiot. <laughs> and I was like, oh... I love the sound of your parents. I would love to live with them for a limited period. Very limited. Please welcome to the stage the very funny Deborah Francis White. So I want to talk a little bit, I don't have any children, but I have lots of godchildren and some codchildren. These are children that have decided they're my godchildren, although their parents did not agree to that. <laughs> it's a name that we've come up with together because, you know, like cod sort of means like a fake, like a cod accent. So I'm a cod mother to a bunch of children, like a sort of concerning Pied Piper. And... <laughs> um, and two of my cod children, a boy and a girl, different families, four years old, I decided just before Christmas to take them to build a bear. Now, does anyone here know build a bear? Yeah, okay, great. So you understand. I took these children in to build a bear so they could build a bear, as is implied in the title. And as we walked in the door, a lady kind of came up in a sort of build a bear t-shirt and said, would you like to set a budget? And I said, no, no they can have whatever they want. Yes. Now that response, that's the sound of parents. <laughs> Why is there no parent at the door going, set a budget, set a budget, whatever you do, set a budget. I'm not a parent. I don't know. I just wanted to be fun godmother and just be like, sure, kids, you can have whatever you want. I thought, how expensive can it be? I mean, I've committed to two bears. Of course, they can have all the accessories. Just if you take nothing else away from the show tonight, or The Guilty Feminist as a podcast, set a budget <laughs> in Build a Bear. I did not know this. So we went, first of all, you have to pick your bear skin, which is a bit, I mean, it's all a bit extraordinary. And they said to Clemency, who was the little girl, they said, Clemency, what would you like? And she said, I'd like a cat, because 
that didn't realize, but Build-A-Bear is not always a bear. That is crucial information that you need. So she said, I would like a cat. And the lady went, and is the cat a boy cat or a girl cat? And I thought, all right. <laughs> like imposing gender on this. I thought, there, surely there should be a, a section for non-binary. Um, <laughs> there was not, there was not. And Clemency said, it's a girl cat. And they said, and what would you like your girl cat to say? Because there's a squeaker inside. But when you press it, it can say something. And she said, I would like it to say meow. And they said, good choice. <laughs> and then they said, terrifyingly, would you like a beating heart? And they put this, like genuinely, like a beating heart inside. I think when you press it, it goes boom, 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 and so you can hear it, and it does it for a little while, so the child can listen. Now, what puts me off that the most is one day the mechanics of that are going to fail, <laughs> and then the child is going to know my bear is dead. That is what is going to happen right there. But Clemency did want a beating heart inside. Of course, she wants her cat to be a real cat. And so then you take it to a lady who puts stuffing in it and sews it up in front of you, sort of like a reverse plastic surgery operation. And then you go over to the accessories and clothing section. And Clemency looked up at me and said, what can I have? And I said, well, you can have whatever you want. And she looked up at me and went, do you mean whatever I want? Or do you mean three things? <laughs> and I said, I, well, you can have whatever you want. She said, I, it's fine if it's three things, but tell me three things. I can choose three things. Clearly, she had been shopping with her mother in the past, and three things was enough. I said, no, you can have whatever you want, because I want to be fun godmother. And Clemency looked at me with some suspicion, and she said, do you mean... I said, yes, I mean it. And then she just went into sort of like a zen state. <laughs> absolutely extraordinary sort of like a ninja she closed her eyes I'm not making this up and spread her body out wide and sort of just started to do this and then she sort of pointed up and right and looked up and there was a sparkly wand and Build-A-Bear had a sparkly wand and then she pointed up here and said and then pointed at a sparkly tutu and then pointed at a supergirl cape and started collecting all these accessories and the lady who'd asked me if I wanted to set a budget who presumably was on commission came over and went would Build-A-Bear like underwear? <laughs> and I went I mean Clemency was all in the sparkly wings and things section and I was just like what? I was, I was like no I'm not buying lingerie for a bear no no <laughs> And then she went, would Build-A-Bear like a passport? And I said, nothing about this child's experience is admin-based. She does not want paperwork. And she went, well, you'd be surprised, you see, because if Build-A-Bear gets a passport, there are some countries that will stamp Build-A-Bear's passport when you go there. You can queue and have Build-A-Bear's passport stamped. And I said, well, it's, she's not my child. And I do feel if I send her home with Build-A-Bear and a passport, that her mother's going to be like, great. Every time we go on holidays, it's like, right, where are we packing? And where are you? Your passport, my passport. Now I've got to find Build-A-Bear and Build-A-Bear's fucking passport. And then queue up in the long queue when everyone else is just flipping through to Spain and holding their passports in the air. Well, we're going to have to stand in the every other passport queue. And we're all going to be Build-A-Bear soon, by the way, British citizens. Uh, 
And, you know, I, I just thought, no, you know, I just, I don't want the situation where we, the family, would love to go to Tel Aviv, but Builder Bear's been to Yemen, so. <laughs> I just said, no, no, it's fine. Builder Bear does not want a passport. Meanwhile, Clemency, who has taken the anything you want literally, Builder Bear is in a pushchair with roller skates on her feet. She has reading glasses and sunglasses. She has amassed a pile. Honestly, I thought we've got to get out of here before Builder Bear gets timeshare. I just... Meantime, Frank, the little boy, he's standing there and they say to Frank, what would you like? And he said, I'd like a dog. And they said, and is your dog a boy dog or a girl dog? And he said, it's a boy dog. And what would you like your boy dog to say when you squeeze it? Meow. <laughs> I was like, they have gone non-binary. They have, they have. I like this. I thought this child is good. This child is better. They, say, they went, sure you wouldn't like to say woof woof? No, I'd like to say meow. You sure you wouldn't like to say woof woof? I think I should say woof woof. He wants it to say meow. He's got a mind of his own. So they stuff Build-A-Bear, they put in the beating heart and everything, and they zip it up. And I say to Frank, what clothes would your Build-A-Bear like? And he looked up at me and went, well, none, because he's a dog. <laughs> and I thought, well, he's only four, so I'll help him. And I said, would your Build-A-Bear like to be dressed as a fireman or Batman? And he went, well, neither, because he's a dog. <laughs> And he looked at me with sympathy in his eyes, like... Who's going to tell this woman that dogs don't wear clothes? But it felt unfair because, you know, Clemency had a truckload of stuff. If a nuclear war came and her Build-A-Bear went down into a bunker, it would be fine for 20 years. I was just like, I can't really just go out with nothing. So eventually Frank agreed that Build-A-Bear should have four roller skates and a leash. And I swear to you, that Build-A-Bear rolled out of that shop wearing Ray-Bans naked. <laughs> and I thought this is something about, you know, whether it's nature, whether it's nurture, whether it's a bit of both, there is a gendered experience sometimes shopping with children and you're thinking, you know, no, they're all the same, they're all the same. And we don't know why it is, you know, it's probably a bit of both. But I thought, wow, you know, as feminist as you try and make your Build-A-Bear experience, ultimately sometimes gender will out and I sort of made some kind of assumptions and then I found my biological family and so I had a four-year-old nephew and I thought I know I know what to do because I'm trying to make a good impression I'm going to take him to build a bear <laughs> so I took him to build a bear and it was his birthday and we walked in the door a lady came over and said would you like to set a budget I said yes <laughs> yes I would so I said, yes, yes, I would love to set a budget. Thank you. I said he would like a Build-A-Bear and Build-A-Bear could have two outfits. And they said, okay, what would you like? And he said, a bear. I was like, good, he's gone classic. I like this child. They went, is it a girl bear or a boy bear? And he said, it's a boy bear. And uh, they said, what would you like to say? He said, woof. They said, okay, great. I was like, three for three, we're all right here. Beating heart, zipped it up take it over. I said, your Build-A-Bear can have two outfits because I had learned. <laughs> he pointed at a pink ball gown and an emerald ball gown and a red wig 
and a blonde wig that would make RuPaul weep tears <laughs> of mascara. And I went, is that all you want? And he went, yep. And I went, now the thing is, I thought this was fabulous, obviously. But I've just joined this family. And my nephew's father is a builder. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be seen as the showbiz interloper who comes in and immediately turns his son into a drag act. <laughs> I know what they're going to think. So I just thought, right, definitely have those because he's chosen them and I would never do anything to undermine that. But perhaps Bilderbear, I said, relenting on my budget, would also like a kilt. And he went, no, he wants these dresses. <laughs> I said, perhaps he would also like to dress as a fireman. No, he wants these dresses. Would he like to be Superman? No, he wants these dresses, and that's all he wants. He was so adamant that Bilderbear have two ball gowns, two wigs, and when I really pushed him, a hairbrush and mirror set. <laughs> and I was like, everything I thought I'd learned about gender from coming to Bilderbear has just been turned on its head. And of course, because I'd taken two children to build a bear. I hadn't taken girls and boys to build a bear. This hadn't taught me anything about sons and daughters. It had only taught me about Clem and Frank. And now I was learning about a new little boy who was, in fact, I'm proud to say my flesh and blood, who was choosing drag. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's what he wants. That's what he wants. I'm going to take him back. And I went back and he ran up to his dad and said, look at my build a bear. And his dad, who's a builder, looked down and went, he's very well dressed, isn't he? He looks wonderful. And I thought, I'm going to fit in fine in this family. Thank you very much. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah from The Guilty Feminist, just letting you know that I have a book coming out in September. It's a book called The Guilty Feminist, and it's got lots and lots of new stuff in it. I've got lots of more time to unpack things that I wouldn't normally get time to talk about in the podcast, but there's also some old favourites in there that some of you have requested. Now, you can come to an event and you will get a book in your event ticket price and then I will sign it for you because I will be at the event. It'll be like a Q&A and a discussion and I'll do a reading from the book and I will come and meet and greet everybody. Um, now, the first event is on the 2nd of September at the Tabernacle in London. Then I go to Birmingham, then Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Glasgow and Brighton. And I'm sure we'll add some more dates in there. If you go to guiltyfeminist.com and scroll down, you'll see book, click on that and you can pre-order the book there. Or if you'd prefer, you can come to an event and you will get a book in the price. We've got some Guilty Feminist live shows coming up soon. On the 15th of July, we are at Open Air Theatre Regents Park. Felicity Ward and I are hosting a Guilty Feminist show there. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be sunny. It's going to be outdoors. It's going to be wonderful. And there's still a few tickets left for that. We are at the Edinburgh Festival on Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th of August at the Underbelly. They have just released more tickets for that. So get in now and grab tickets while you can. On September the 17th, we will be at the Northern Stage Newcastle. And on the 10th of October, we will be at the Barbican Hall with Guardian Live. Um, that will be the same sort of show as one of the Palladium shows. So get in now and book quickly for that.
On the 20th of October, we're coming to Liverpool to be at the Playhouse. And you can find details of all of these shows at guiltyfeminist.com. Also, we are going to start doing events in Calais. If you would like to perform at one of these events, if you do music, if you do comedy, if you do storytelling or if you do poetry, please get in touch And if you teach yoga or any other therapeutic skill, please get in touch if you would like to be involved. If you don't do anything like that, but you think you'd like to go over as a producer one week, i.e. take over a clipboard and organise everything and make sure the performers are in the right place at the right time. Or you can drive a car and you would be happy to drive a carload of performers, teachers and other volunteers over. Please get in touch at Calais at guiltyfeminist.com and John Quill or Anna will get back to you. At this stage, we're just looking to schedule events. Uh, We haven't started the operation yet, but it will start soon. So please let us know as soon as you can. Back to the show. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Our guests today are Rosalind Brody, who is a co-founder of Sounds Like Thunder Theatre Company. Their new verbatim play, Kidding, will be at the Edinburgh Fringe this August. She comes with another guest, Juliet Stevenson, who was nominated for a BAFTA for her role in Truly Madly Deeply. You may also have seen her in Life Story, Bend It Like Beckham and Emma. And because of our theme, she is Rosalind Brody's mother. I mean, not because of our theme, that happened earlier. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Rosalinda Juliet. Oh, hello, hello. So, have you ever been to Build a Bear? I have, yeah. Yeah. What did you get just out of interest? A bear. You got a bear? Yeah. Do you remember what accessories it came away from? Yeah, a little black dress, a little white fur collar. Ah, Chanel. Very classic. Chanel. <laughs> Chic. You've taught her well, Juliet. <laughs> or was that in her? Did she come out with that little bit of... Yeah, she was very self-determining from the word go. Mm. Mm. Now, that's a polite way of saying it. <laughs> that's what, when mothers say their children are very self-determining. So you guys, have you ever worked together? Because you are now a writer and director... And you are a very famous actor. <laughs> Have you ever worked together? Would you ever work together? No, uh, no, sorry, not, not no, we wouldn't. Um, well, that's no. cool. No, no, we haven't, we haven't. And it's a really, this is an amazing moment for us because it's the first time we have ever, ever sort of come out together as... Um, Professionally, if, if this is a professional yes, event. I didn't know if you mentioned it's payment, lovely. actually. It's a, there was yes, no talk of great. money. That's great. It's a highly professional event. Anyway, no, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's literally the first time. So it's really wonderfully weird and strange. Mm. And very special. Yeah, it's really lovely. special, actually. Do you think growing up with a mother in the arts affected you or changed you? Or do you know how much it sort of led you in that direction? I think it's quite hard to say 
whether I would have had any other kind of life. I did try not to do this really hard. I tried not to be in the arts. That's a good instinct. Yeah, it went really badly. If, if you can do anything else, you yeah. absolutely should. But actually, mum gave me a really good piece of advice and she said, if you can imagine someone else getting there before you, ahead of you, and it doesn't kill you inside, don't do it. Oh, that's good, isn't it? That's a fantastic mother wisdom. Yes, it, and um, well, I'm here, so. Mm. <laughs> I think if I had a child, would I want them to go into the arts? And I think I would, but I don't know if I'd want them to be a performer because mm. I think that's so kind of exposing. I think your job of writer-director, you're sort of godlike, aren't you? Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that relaxing, Juliet? It's been really interesting because for a while she did think she wanted to act. And I didn't ever say this because, you know, you don't, but the degree of my panic and my worry about that was really quite disconcerting because I thought... Why am I in such a panic that my daughter would go into the same profession as I'm in? What does that say about me? What does it say about the work I do? I was disappointed. I thought, she's got to do something better than that. You know? And then, I mean, I love my work. I passionately love it. I think it's serious. I think it's important. And, you know, I'd fight for the right to do it. And yet, why am I so anxious and disappointed that my daughter wants to... I suppose partly because being a mother is partly about wanting your children to be free of all the things, all the shit that you experienced. And that's a lot to do with how I mothered. I think, you know, nobody knows how to do it. You learn as you go along. And my rule was sort of, what happened to me when I was one week, six months, you know, 14, you know, 21? And I think back and I think, okay, I'm not going to do that. Or she won't have that. that or he won't have... That's the way I've always parented to try and reimagine. And so you think, God, I don't want her to go through what I went mm. through. Well, also, there's the, the sort of whole me too aspect of, mm. of acting that, you know, it's sort of always there. And I think, not that a director or a writer wouldn't experience it, but it's a different sort of engagement with the craft, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think the Me Too thing has been completely fascinating. And I think for me, I am happy when I see the whole conversation getting very, very diverse and broad. Because I think, of course, the worst stuff is when people get assaulted or jumped on in hotel rooms and the sexual abuse and so on. But I think there are so many levels at which women are kept in boxes. You have to turn, you've seen so many hundreds of actresses pretend to be stupid, pretend to be, uh, you know, redefining themselves, making themselves smaller human beings in order to succeed. Seen them make choices in a rehearsal room which I think they wouldn't want to make, but they're making them to please people. You know, I've had myself so much experience, I suppose, of not quite being allowed to be who I am. Yeah, so I think that the whole conversation about how you are intimidated and how you are kept silent and how you are is a very, very huge conversation in our industry. And it's a lot to do with keeping people silent and not hearing voices that should have been heard. So it's, mm. it's, I encourage the conversation to go in those directions too. Are you feeling liberated by what's happened recently? Oh, yeah, I think it's... I mean, already you feel the difference. I right? do, yeah. I mean, do people feel that? Uh, yeah. I do. I feel in, a big In the workplace. Difference. Yeah. It's already different because, you know, it used to be like a club, you know, and, you, and not even all women in the room might feel the same. I mean, I once was at the Royal Shakespeare Company arguing like crazy that of all the 12 associate directors there, none of whom were women, maybe they might like to rethink their policy and have some women come into the company. This was years ago. And it um, caused a lot of fuss. They didn't listen. So we went public. We created a debate. They got very angry. And finally, they said, OK, have a slot, you know, in the Barbican and make it a women's program. We were really fucked, actually, because we got all the actors in the company in one room. There were about 
20 of us. And not even, you know, many of the women in the room thought, this is, we don't have anything in common. You know, this is not necessarily a bond. So now I think that for women too, there's a sort of consciousness that's out there now. There is a language, there's a vocabulary. Everybody can come out of the box now and identify that. It's not just up to them to negotiate personally in a rehearsal room or on a stage. Now there's a vocabulary about it. Mm. And, and there is architecture to support women yeah. when they come forward and when they speak up. I saw something about Love Island. I don't watch Love Island, but I get the idea. Mm. Uh, <laughs> go to, you go to an island of single people and then they have sex, something like that. <laughs> and somebody was gaslighting and Women's Aid said the behaviour that he's using is emotional abuse. And they made a statement about it. said, if you're watching this as a young girl at home, you shouldn't think this is normal behaviour. What he's doing is abusive. And it made me feel really happy because I've experienced stuff like that before where men have made me feel like my version of events was completely invalid and I was insane and then they push you into a place where you're emotional and then they'll go oh see you're so emotional mm. and you know so I feel it's a very liberating time your play Rosalind that you're taking up to the fringe is it about mothers and daughters? It is about mothers and daughters it's also very much informed by me too and the idea that we should be collaborating and not self-isolating especially you know women to women the idea is that we should be speaking across generations and also you know just to each other to be heard and to be um yeah in collaboration in some way or other so it's a verbatim play yes could you just explain what that means it means that all the text in the play every single word was actually said by someone to either myself or my writing partner so we interviewed lots of people of all ages and many genders and many walks of life and we've compiled a text that is all real speech so it's kind of like the Gogglebox principle, if you watch Gogglebox. It's the idea that you can make something really entertaining and artful out of just sort of ordinary conversation. And it's mothers and daughters speaking directly to the audience? It's about women's experience of the parent-child relationship, but there is one man in the cast. <laughs> it's, it's fine, it's fine. There are men in the room tonight. <laughs> And when people come to it, what sort of experience are they going to get? Is it funny? Is it Yeah, I mean, it's a, a lot, we want it to be funny a lot of the time because I think all of these feelings that you have about your mom or about you know, an important woman in your life or an authority figure are so often plural. So you have a kind of very funny time with them, but it might be undercut by something much more serious and much more meaningful than just a light laugh. So that's the idea. It'll be a very serious narrative on some level, but then lots and lots of laughs, I hope. That sounds like exactly my sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I saw a play last night that was verbatim, but also it really made me sort of think about this theme. It's based on a documentary called The Bloody Town Hall about feminists in 1971 in New York taking on Norman Mailer, because Norman Mailer basically wrote a very anti-feminist piece in a magazine. But it's an amazing thing, and it really made me think the verbatim nature of it there's something so powerful about it and there's something so 2018 about it because they played some of the documentary behind them so the actors were saying the words but we could see the real people saying the words at the same time and then it was cut up with other footage and other text. It was unbelievable. It's on tomorrow night. It's the last night at the Barbican. It's an American company called the Worcester Group. Um, They're amazing. So, so, so amazing. But the feminists portrayed, it really made me realise what our mothers were up against. Our mothers who engaged in feminism, or even if they didn't identify as feminists or as part of the women's liberation movement, they were part of that time that broke down barriers. It gave me a new respect for, if your mother was of that generation, man, what they went up against. 
Huge. I mean, I have to jump in here because my mom was of that generation and we lived abroad briefly and she went to university and, you know, there was feminism in India. I mean, we had an Indian, our prime minister was Indira Gandhi, you know, so that was something that was an well, outlier for us because the rest of the time you were just cooking and taking care of your kids. But my mother, we lived abroad and she went to university and she wrote her thesis, she did a thesis in psychology, and she, the dedication on the thesis, I must have been seven years old, was live and let live. And I remember asking her why, and it was so funny, she said to me, this is for all women. And I didn't understand what that meant, but she was part of a generation she never identified as. But in her mind, this idea that women had to stick together and we had stuff that we needed to fight against was uppermost in her mind. I mean, it's not like she said, I dedicate this to my kids. She could have said that. She was like, no, live and let live, you know? Mm. And she raised us. She used to complain to my father. She used to say, you're raising them like boys. And I was, when I was older, I said, why did you say that? Because she'd always said to us, you need to get a job. You need to be financially independent because she was dependent on my father, who, by the way, is a really nice guy, thank God. But, you know, she was dependent on him. She didn't want me to be dependent on my husband, which I am completely, so well done, mom. <laughs> Um, but you're a very successful comedian and previously had a very professional job, just to be clear. Just to, yeah, okay, I mean, it's true. a funny line, Sindhu, but you are a powerhouse, just to be clear. Yeah, and we live in the West, so if I left, I'd get half. <laughs> no, that, yes, no, it's true. I've never been financially put on my husband. She's absolutely right. My mother would have killed me. But the interesting thing is when she was to say to my dad, you're raising them like boys, and this is about internalizing, mm. that our mothers were feminists, but there were things they didn't even know they had to mm. argue against. Because I asked her, I said, why did you say that? She said, because your father is teaching you to just come out and ask for what you want. You can't do that. You're a woman. Mm. you need to read the room, that making yourself smaller. Mm. So she was like, get a job, be great, but don't just come out and ask what you want. You know, because in that time of feminism, that's not what you did. Mm. You watched and you tried to get ahead. Do you remember your childhood, Juliet? Were you raised in a feminist environment? Not at all, and my mum, but I was just thinking when you were talking, that in a way, what is feminism? Women have always felt down, wanted uh, these things, I suspect. In every culture, I was thinking of this very strong matriarchal tradition in, you know, in much of Indian society, where women have always got things done. They've always done these extraordinary things if they had education, if, yeah. they, had, if they had education. In a way, I look at my own mother, who's 94 now. Uh, Rosalind was born on her 70th birthday, so they share this birthday, oh. these women who bookend my life. <laughs> and um, my mum is ferociously intelligent, hungry, ambitious. Um, what is she do she was a wife all her life she was an army wife she couldn't even choose her furniture or which part of the world she lived in she had no choices had to send her kids away to army boarding schools and was extremely frustrated I think and, and but you know had she been born in my era she would have had a completely different life but it isn't that feminism has changed us really it's just that it's allowed us to be who we would have been anyway I mean, Shakespeare writes amazing roles that way. The women in Shakespeare's plays, like Rosalind, after whom I named my daughter, it's not that when she puts on a guy's clothing, she becomes something else. It's something that because the world perceives her as a guy, mm. she can grow into that shape, but it's all there anyway. And that's Shakespeare's point. And I think that feminism mm. is a little like that. Yeah. Feminism simply allows women to be the size, the shape, the scale that they are, but they have all that 
there, you know. Sure. But my mum, you know, who is this character, who's amazing, but she's also somebody who turned to me a couple of weeks ago when she'd had a chat with my youngest, my son, Gabriel, and who's finally doing quite well at school. And she said, um, he's very intelligent these days, isn't he, darling? And I went, yeah, no, he's, he's really bright. Mum said, yeah, he's got his father's brains. <laughs> oh! No, verbatim, verbatim, I mean... <laughs> And I went, this is why we need verbatim work. (laughs) But she's quite capable of saying, your your wig looked lovely, my darling, from the back. You know, um, (laughs) you say she's a nobody can insult you like your mother. No, no, no. It's a twist of a knife, isn't it? Because it's like they know. And also, they're trying to tell you something that they think is good for you to hear. Yeah. So they say, your wig looked lovely, darling, from the back. (laughs) So you may want to think about the way it is at the front, because I don't want other people judging (laughs) you the way I have. Darling, I don't want everyone to judge you tomorrow the way that I know I did tonight. And that's what they're like. Mothers, I don't know what it is. Your mother can be a feminist and you can be a feminist, but can you and your mother share in feminism? Can you be both of the same sisterhood? Because is there always a sort of patriarchal relationship there because your mother wishes to protect you? You know, I think protection is first and foremost is a matriarchal instinct, you know? Like, lionesses are not eating their kids. The lions are eating their kids. I mean, I have just, I have, because as we know, all lionesses are very feminist. Um, they are, though. They're the they ones are. that hunt. They're the ones that hunt. But here's the Lions thing. do fuck all. They do nothing. Lionesses have the babies. They do everything. They hunt. They protect. Do you know what the lions do? They lie about and they roar and show off. They've got bigger manes. Everyone thinks they're doing the work. And if that is not a metaphor for feminism patriarchy, I don't know what is. Absolutely. Um, don't, and then when they're old, they fight. What The younger one fights the older one and then it just limps off and dies on its own. It's yeah. so sad. Okay, so but, sad. But before they limp off and die on their own, they eat some kids. Oh, yeah, they do That's do that. Like, what, you have they eat their own children do. because they're threatened because they know that the son will eventually fight them. All they do is war. Everything useful is done by lionesses. Exactly. And, and I mean, anyway, this has been great. Uh, small uh, documentary. So I just on, feel quite strongly no, about but it. But I've always thought of I've that. always have. Because here's the thing. I think that protect... I mean, I feel that I am absolutely on the same plane with my mother about feminism, about where I should be as a woman, because my mother, to her great credit, has tried to understand my life. My father is very protective of me. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's visiting and I go for a gig, he says, what time will you be home? <laughs> I'm like, dude, I've got three kids. Yeah. I'm good. And he's like, no, no, but don't be late. Mm. And I'm like, what? And then he says, if there are any unsavory characters in the audience, simply don't do the gig. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to a bar in East London. There's only unsavory characters <laughs> at this hour in this hole in the wall. But my mother, she always says to me, go out go do your thing, or agar koi kuch bole and anyone says anything to you, you look at them and you think, you are a dog. <laughs> and I am an elephant. <laughs> because when elephant walks, the dog will bark. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. I walk and, you know, when I go to a gig and people don't laugh, I'm like, you dog, I'm an elephant. <laughs> That's a good thing to remember on Twitter. That if somebody trolls you, you just send back a picture of oh, a dog no. and an elephant. Because and you know, no when, explanation. Yeah, but, <laughs> does your mother still worry about you, Juliet, do you think? Yeah, I mean, 
I think the only reason I was allowed to be an actress was because I was a girl. You know, I have two older brothers and, you know, they had high expectations of them and they were sent to sort of posh schools and posh universities. I didn't go to university and I think the only reason I was allowed to be an actress was because it didn't really matter. I mean, I, I, in some ways, some weird inverse feminism made me freer than they were because there weren't many expectations mm. on me. That's so, so true. You're Prince Harry, not Prince William. Yeah, I'm Prince Harry. I'm, I'm pre- <laughs> That's um, so true. Are you Prince Harry or Prince William, just to be clear? Oh, I think I'm Meghan. Oh, (laughs) good answer. Very, very good answer. Please welcome to the stage the wonderful Sindhu V. Thank you. Hi. So something happened to me on the tube on the way here, which resonates so much with the theme, and it's not comedy, but I feel like I have to share it. So I got on the tube, and uh, we were getting ready to go, and the doors were about to close, and this little boy was running on with his mom, and he ran on, and he let go of her hand, and the door shut. (laughs) For any parents in the room, this has been my nightmare. Since I moved to England, I didn't even have children. I used to, because I have a lot of anxiety, it's something I have to deal with, and so my anxiety, you know, I didn't have kids, I used to think what would happen. So this kid ran on, and the door closed, and he was a little boy, my instinct was to jump up, and I took him like this, and I said, don't worry, and then I realized he didn't speak English, and the mother was at the door going, and she was slamming this door, and I looked at her, and I said, you're gonna be fine. And then I thought, what do you mean she's gonna be fine? What are you, the train driver? (laughs) What are you doing? But I felt, I could see the terror on her face and I thought I need to reassure her. As a mother, I thought this woman could have her last breath right there on the platform. I said, you're gonna be fine. She was slamming the door, so I tried to hit the open button. By the way, everyone on the tube was like. (laughs) Anyway, and the door opened and she ran in and she hugged her boy. And I stepped back and I thought, wow. You know, I mean, as a mom, I was like, wow. And then the second thought I had was, this lady is not my mom, because my mom would have got on that tube and given me such a tight slap. (laughs) And then hugged me and cried. (laughs) They didn't speak English. The family didn't speak English. And then her husband came on, and he was like, ha-ha, in whatever language. But, you know, (laughs) this is is how I interpret it. Ha-ha, everything's fine. She just looked at him, and she was like, blah, 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 (laughs) blah. And I was like, that's right, you tell him. I have no idea what they were saying. But I was sitting there like, that's right. And I was like, you're laughing, dude, she's gonna deck you. Anyway, and it was fine, and then I had to get off, but she literally couldn't breathe. I have to tell you guys, that was like so frightening, the look on her face. Anyway, I wanted to tell her the instructions you would give your kid, but I thought since we don't speak any of the same language, I'm just gonna leave it. So I just kept smiling at her like, Anyway, that's not what I was going to tell you. I was going to tell you that I, um, this was a really good episode for Deborah to ask me to, because I am very, very close to my mother. You know, my mother and I speak every day, minimum once a day. It's been a lot more because she's obsessed with the royal wedding, so that's been going on. <laughs> like in the lead up to the wedding, it was calls all the time. She called me in like eight months before the wedding or six months and said, you know, I don't mind that Meghan Markle is divorcee. Literally, no one cares what you think, man. 
you know, and she would always say this thing. I was telling someone earlier, I was, you know, she would always say, oh, you know, I'm so happy for Henry. I'm like, it's Harry. Uh, <laughs> I'm so happy for Harry. Now he's that poor Diana. Her soul has been crying hither and thither. I'm like, what does that even mean, hither and thither? Anyway, so she's been very happy. And then right in the lead up to the wedding, she called just before and said, so do we know who is making the dress? And I was like, no. She said, why not? We are the public. It is our right. I'm like, dude, you are not the public. You're like an 80-year-old lady who lives in Delhi. And then she would say, and what about that bitch Camila? Is she coming? She hates her. She hates her. Oh my God. She hates her. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they can, but I'm just going to be really honest with you about what she said, because I was like, yeah, she's coming. She's Prince Charles's wife. She's like, she is not a wife. She's a whore. <laughs> hates this woman. Hates her. And it's just crazy to me. And my mother watches the news. She reads the news. But she sort of, it's not fake news, but if fake news people employed my mother, it would really work. Because... <laughs> What she does is she takes bits of news that are sort of in people's mind and then mushes them together with no respect for chronology, geography, or history, right? Because she rang just the other day and said, you know, I don't think Megan should socialize with that bitch Camila. Because, you know, Camila will come and they will have the high tea and Camila will poison her tea because everyone in London is getting poisoned these days. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's another piece of news from somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I'm very close to my mom, and I'm raising my daughters. Obviously, I can't raise them the way I was raised, because that's illegal in this country. <laughs> but, you know, I try. And one of the really hard things for me is, like, here you have to have dialogue with your kids. Dialogue, dialogue, and be honest with them. I grew up with monologue, <laughs> where my mother would just tell me stuff, and I would have to go and do it. You know what I mean? And she didn't engage. I remember going to my mom when I was very little and saying, oh, you know, I think when I grow up, I want to be an actor. My mother was like, actress? Like Bollywood, Hollywood? Why don't you go straight to prostitute? <laughs> and I was like, I'm seven years old. What does that word mean? <laughs> I don't know. Because in India at that time, acting was not a reputable... Uh, but we never discussed anything. But with my kid, you know, I have a teenage daughter. I have to have dialogue. But I don't think kids can handle the truth, you see? You know, she came to me and she said, Mommy, what if I'm gay? I'm like, well, I don't know. What if? She said, no, but how will I know? And I was like, well, I'll be honest with you, dude. You're in an all-girls school. You kind of won't know. <laughs> For a while, they'll just be like, hmm, this is it, you know? I mean, I went to a convent. I had a crush on my house captain for five years, like full-on damp underwear crush. <laughs> and my daughter was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just told me that. I'm like, you brought it up. <laughs> what? How is this on me? Crazy, crazy. Um, so yeah, it is much harder. But the one thing I want to do for my, all my children, but in particular my daughters, is I want to always communicate to them that I'm in their corner. You know what I mean? Because my mother has always, always done that for me. Any point in my life. I remember when I was in my mid-twenties and I was applying for work in the UK because I didn't want to go back to India. I just wanted to stay abroad a bit longer and I thought I need a job and I really had worked very hard and I was applying to all these different firms. I kept getting rejections and then once I got like through to the final round, I was really excited and then I got a phone call 
from the HR head, and she was like, hey, Sindhu, this is Sarah, and I'm just calling to tell you, you did so well in the interview. Oh my God, you were so impressive. You did way better than the general pool. But the fact is, we had such a talented pool this year, we're not going to be able to make you an offer. Oh, but here's the thing. You're really talented. I'm sure you'll find the right fit. So keep your chin up and uh, bye. <laughs> and I was like, uh, so I did what I have always done in that situation is I wept. I just started crying and then I called my parents because well, I had an American roommate when I started crying in like full Indian Bollywood manic crying. She was like, oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> what? She's like, tissue? No, I think you need 911. Like, she did not know how to manage me. And so I called my parents. And my parents, like all Indian parents of a certain age, do not share the same bedroom. Because my father says, oh, your mother snores. And my mother's like, I hate him. So they don't stay in the same room. And, uh, and so they both have a phone, you know, the same number, but they both picked up. And I was like, oh, I didn't get the job. I don't know what to do. And so my father's very erudite. And he was like, child, child, you must change your perspective. According to our Hindu shastras, in which time is cyclical. Today you are facing the dark and moonless night. You have no hope. But you will go to sleep. And when you wake up, you will see the resplendent sun. And my mother was like, Are, just shut up. She is a complete failure. And you are saying that when you go to sleep at night, it's very dark. And when you wake up, there is sunshine. What is stupid? Just be quiet. You listen to me, Sindhu. You call back that woman, that Jenny, huh? And you tell her, I was like, Jen, it's, it's, she's like, Are, Jack, Jenny, Mark, they all have the same name. Anyway, you call back that Jenny and you tell her, Hello, Jenny. Thank you for leaving your very good message to me, Jenny. But in the message, you told me not to be worried. Or, hey, Jenny, I am not worried. I will definitely become a banker. You wait and see. I will go to a great firm, Jenny, yes. And in that firm, I will do so well, I will become the boss. And then from that firm, Jenny, I will come back to your firm, Jenny, as your boss. And I will fire your ass. <laughs> And Jenny, then you will know what it is to be worried, yes. Because I will go high in the sky, you will be one homeless bitch under the bridge. <laughs> under the bridge. And then Jenny, then you will know what it is to be Jenny. Are Jenny, I spit on you too. I spit on your job too. And Jenny, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> to tell you guys, I have never felt more supported in my life. Thank you so much.
But yeah. I think we were talking about this earlier. I mean, there's such an because I mean, I'm a lot older than either of you guys, and I think I'm probably old enough to be your mothers. But anyway, I'm sure, um, that's not true. I mean, I would say now I learn more about feminism now from Rosalind. I mean, I've learned, yes. you know, I learned about you guys. That's so interesting, isn't it? That oh, the yeah. younger generation is teaching the older generation about feminism now. So much, and she's on my case all the time. I mean, I now, you know, one of the many beautiful things about being a mother, I think, is that you know, you start by trying to show them the way and open the doors and all that stuff, and um, tell them what's right and wrong and what's good idea and a less good idea. And then there comes a point where those things sort of merge and then they reverse. And I would say we're heading into, you know, reversal now. So I look to her to kind of, she's the first person in my life to kind of say, mum, that's sexist, racist, that's some, you know, uh, not racist, hopefully, but you know, no, she's, no, but she's on my... <laughs> no, no, in terms of intersectionality. Tom, Tom, no. no, no, I know what you mean. In terms of intersectionality, intersectional feminism and sort of saying, oh, that's white feminism or that's, you know, yeah. you've got to think about it from a woman of colour's totally. point of view. Totally. And that is a classic example of what, you know, don't mm. we in the kitchen, she'll Say, Mum, that you, you know is all very well, but that's white feminism. And I think, but 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 she's no. Hang on a minute, just listen. Mm. I've learned a huge amount. I mean, I only knew about this podcast through her, but you know, I know I learn a huge amount now, and I it's so joyous that that because we were a very defensive generation. We had to battle everything out. Mm. You know, I thought I was just weird and wrong all my childhood. You know, until I hit the women's movement in my twenties, and thought, oh wow, there are other women out there who also, you know don't want to marry just yet, want to be rather than to be somebody else's something or want to look like this and don't want to do that. And honestly, it was like coming out or something. Mm. That's what the women's movement did to me. But it was a pretty torturous 20 years from that point of view, finding it out alone. And I think your generation, would you say, would you say this is true, that they're much more on the front foot. There's a lot of that stuff. You were born into a women's movement that was much more vocal and much more already in the culture. And so... I marvel at the way Rosalind's generation are like on the front foot. They don't care if they go out wearing high heels and lipstick. And, you know, we wouldn't have dreamed of doing that because it was breaking some code. Uh, we were much more self-critical and mm. there were codes of practice. If you were a feminist, you didn't do. But I, I love the way this generation is kind of doing it for themselves. I, I know, because I think when we were young, young people were just sort of stupid, inexperienced old people. And we had to be taught everything by the generation up. This generation are the teachers. Yeah. Because firstly, they're digital natives in a way that even millennials weren't. You know, you're Gen Z, aren't you? Um, how, how old are you? Do you mind asking? Four. Yeah, yeah. I think you're cusping on Gen Z. Okay. So yeah, I think you're Gen Z. Um, so your digital native, you know, you don't really remember a time before an iPad. I remember our first dial-up internet. Do you? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm wrong. Uh, I feel that's because your mother was late to the game. I don't think that was... Um, I must ask you, because I met you at an Amnesty gig, and Juliet, you're an ambassador for Amnesty. What has driven you to Amnesty? Is that something about parenting and the way we sort of, in a way, I suppose, the way the world parents or nurtures or protects some people more than others? Well, actually, um, there's a whole lot of Amnesty friends in the audience tonight. Let's hear it for them. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm an Amnesty ambassador because Amnesty totally rocks. I mean, mm. first of all, they are fearless. So they will stand up and talk about issues in the world that most people, including our beloved BBC and many other, will no longer talk about. They are fearless in what they will say. This is happening. This should not be happening. Mm. And they are a voice of truth in a world which is increasingly about spin and PR. Mm. So I need Amnesty, and they're like oxygen. But the refugee thing, I mean, I did actually get involved many years ago when I did a play about a woman who'd been detained, and it was called Death and the Maiden. But 
A long time ago, when she was 13, I got very involved in trying to end women detention. I went to Yarlswood and I saw these women and they happened to have 13-year-old daughters. Mm. Two women I met and spent time with. And that I went with my great friend, Natasha Walter, who now runs Women for Refugee Women. And my daughter was 13 and I thought of her running around school with her friends and her work that day. And these two kids were locked up in Yarlswood with their mothers who were both collapsing psychologically and um, these young girls with no schooling, no outdoor space, no peer group, nothing, trying to parent their desperate parents were locked up in this place. And so we got onto the train to go home at the end of the day and we decided we'd make a verbatim piece about this. And I know Amnesty must be very involved with what's happening at the border in America at the moment, which is horrifying. Sorry, I've got off the point. So um, No, no, you haven't gone off the point at all. This is all the point. This is absolutely the point. The refugee thing, I went to Cali, like most people like you and like a lot of people went to Calais at the beginning of the crisis and just saw all these kids running around, um, hundreds and hundreds of kids, some as young as six or seven, with no parents, um, leaving aside all the women who were tucked away and not even visible because it was too risky. And the whole situation was just heartbreaking. And so like many, many, many people thought, oh, well, I can't stop here with my van load of, you know, jogging bottoms and rice got to do some more stuff so then got more and more involved in all sorts of you've had Josie um, Norton here yes from Help Refugees yes so I met her there we became great mates and you bought a bus on eBay didn't you for them I did I bought yeah I bought a double-decker bus it was my first eBay purchase um I did it all wrong. I paid the guy over the phone, which apparently you're not supposed to. Anyway, it, and then we got the bus converted. Um, we crowdfunded. We made 10 grand in a week. The public were amazing. And we used the money to convert the bus into a women and children's centre. And we drove it into Calais, which was exciting. Just to go back to Amnesty. So, yeah, and they have been astonishing on the refugee issue, and mm. particularly on family reunion, you know, to try and persuade, cajole, bully this government that we have who are not really interested in in bringing children, refugee children who have family here back to reunify with their families. Because this is the thing is, we're all shocked by America, but actually there was something awful, like two-thirds of the children when the jungle was dismantled got just disappeared. We just don't know where they are. There's all sorts of separation of children at borders in Australia with the refugee crisis here. Like, we can't just look at America and go, isn't that... I mean, that is awful. That is awful. And Trump saying he's going to reverse it doesn't mean the children will be rehoused with their parents. They said going forward they won't separate but in some cases they've gone into the foster system and they don't even know where these children are it's so 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 horrendous and if you just go out to Calais and meet some people you immediately want to nurture and if everyone could know one refugee the crisis would be over that's what I think in the meantime we have to support Amnesty we have to support help refugees the profits from the show tonight will go to Amnesty so you're already doing your bit tonight by coming along to the show And I met you at an Amnesty gig. Do you also do stuff for Amnesty or will you be doing stuff for Amnesty going forward? If they'll have me. (laughs) Yes, they certainly will. I would love you to come out and do your show in Calais because you may have heard about this on the podcast already, but if you can play the guitar, if you can tell stories, if you can do stand-up comedy, anything you can do that could be turned into a performance, we're going to have performances out there because the French government will not let us build structures out there anymore so that the jungle will never happen again. But they can't stop us doing events. And the events will bring joy, energy and life and they'll also bring press because that will escalate and develop and eventually we'll have Ed Sheeran out there and that's at the point when (laughs) policy changes. It is. I mean, it's ridiculous, but Ed Sheeran, if you're listening to this and I'm sure you're a regular listener, 
Somebody I know knows Ed Sheeran and will play this to him. If you come out, it will make a difference because then the press follow. The press refused to do anything about Calais anymore. Yesterday, I just had such a down day because a 19-year-old boy in Calais killed himself and it's just, he just lost hope. And if you've got that far, the death-defying journeys these people take, they nearly die so many times to get there and then they think when they get there, it's going to be something. And then every day right now, the CRS, the French military police, are taking people's tents and sleeping bags, even children's shoes to make it a hostile environment to send that message. And he just gave up hope. He just thought there's nowhere legal on planet Earth for me to live. And I just felt like if we'd been out there more, like if there were more volunteers out there and more energy, you know, the regular volunteers are incredible, but they need to be energized and they need morale building and they need us to get off the info bus and chat to people and bring that fresh energy. And maybe if I'd met him, you know, maybe there would have been just one conversation, just hold on, you know, hold on another day. And I just feel like we've got to, we've just got to, because, you know, now I know Steve and his friends who come around to my house and I'm like a mum to them. I'm like... They're just boys and girls who need a mum and need a family and need somebody to just make them feel safe and important. And I just feel like we have to and we can. That's what's amazing about it. We can. We, we, we can. Absolutely. You know, and... We, we can, and I think, you know, we're talking about mothers and daughters and we're talking about refugees, and I think there is, you know, I think that what you've just expressed is like a mother talking, you know, with the kind of passion you would talk about your child. What I sort of long for people to do is to feel as strongly about other people's kids as they do about their own, you know. I think everybody can have mother's love, whether or not they've got children, and just direct to all those kids who desperately, desperately need our help. And, and you're right, they are brutally treated, and sometimes brutally treated in this country too. There have been amazing generation, the 20 to 35 generation, that form the large majority of people who've been in Cali doing astonishing work in the cold and the mud for three years now. And I salute you, that generation, your generation, mm. sweetheart. So many young people um, out there. And incredible, out there. incredible. Um, so I have a lot of hope on, on their behalf, but you're dead right. The world has forgotten about Calais. There are about 2,000 people living there now. The kids are brutalised by the CRS. Mm. They take their phones and stamp on them. They, they hurt t- them as well. There was one boy there that was bandaged when we were there. But the lifeline that it is when they meet people. So if you can teach yoga or any restorative skill, you can go out, work with the volunteers, but also work at the Women and Children's Centre teaching yoga, at the men's drop-in centre they have now there. If you can perform, do storytelling, it's easier at first to do that sort of stuff with and for the volunteers because there are issues, but hopefully we'll be able to build that so those things will also happen at the Women and and Men's Centres as well. So please get in touch. You have to email Calais at guiltyfeminist.com. If you just want to do regular volunteering there and they're desperate for the regular volunteers, helprefugees.org. But please donate to Amnesty, amnesty amnesty.org.uk. And is there any other action you'd like people to take when they go to amnesty.org.uk? So there's, I mean, we're talking about mothers and daughters. You'll all know about Nazanin Zaghari Rat. who is a British Iranian mum who has been in prison for over two years now and Amnesty would desperately love everybody to go to their website and if you could just complete the action that they ask you to take which is to write to the Secretary of State saying get on with it and get that mother. She's been in there for over two years. Her health, both physically and mentally, has deteriorated really, really badly and she has a four-year-old 
the little Gabriella, her daughter, from whom she's been separated. And it's a desperate situation in which the government could do a lot more, I think, about... Please, please go and do that. It doesn't really take much time or effort to go and do it. And if we all do it, it does make a change. They respond to lots of people wanting something. And it's really easy to go, oh, that's really sad and it's too hard to look at. But if we're not going to do it, we hear people who will come out for a show about feminism, who is... If it's not us, who is it? It's got to be us. And it rolls out, you know, people tell other people. Rosalind, can you please tell us where we can see you? So we'll be on at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival at Zoo Southside Studio at 8.50pm from the 3rd to the 14th of August. We've got lots of social media and we've got a GoFundMe that desperately needs support. So if you do have any scraps, we'd be so grateful. And that is on our website, which if you Google Sounds Like Thunder. Go along, support it, get your tickets now for the Edinburgh Festival. And if you can pop anything into their funding basket, they'd really appreciate it. The Old Vic is a registered charity that receives no regular subsidy. They need to fundraise every year. It's an amazing program of events here. It's a beautiful theatre. It's turning 200 years old this year. So come along, support it, get involved, become a friend. You may know if you're a regular listener to this show that we have a hip-hop musical called Suffragettan, which is about the suffragettes. Um, Now, great minds think alike because the Old Vic also has a hip-hop musical about the suffragettes and it's called Sylvia and we need to talk about it briefly because it is about the relationship particularly between Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter, Sylvia Pankhurst. So we, as two feminist productions, are supporting each other and it would be great if you could see both and compare and contrast. Um, You'll get something out of both. That's here, 3rd of September to the 22nd of September. Sindhu, do you have anything to plug? I do, and just before I plug it, I just want to say one thing is, if you do, I hope you all do go out to Cali, I hope you all do something, but sometimes when you don't have kids, you think, what can I tell this kid? I mean, I'm not their parent, I'm not their mother, I'm not their father. That kid who jumped on the tube today, and I held him, the look on his face was he felt okay. I think kids understand love, no matter who it comes from, if it's something safe. Love makes them feel safe, and then they get hope. And so please never think that, oh, I don't have kids, I don't know how to communicate with them. Give a kid love, it leads to hope, and that's really important, Mm. please. Uh, What do I have to plug? I'm doing my debut hour in Edinburgh this year. Uh, The show is called Sandhog, and it's on at the Pleasance every day at 4.30. So please come and watch it. I have written a book. It's uh, called The Guilty Feminist, and it's got lots and lots and lots of new stuff in it and some old favourites that people have requested. It's being published by Virago, and it will be out in September, but please pre-order it now. It's very key that you do that according to the publishers. I don't know why. It's something to do with... Something to do with they wanted to be a bestseller, and uh, we all wanted to be a bestseller because of feminism. So... um, (laughs) If you could order that now, go to guiltyfeminist.com and you'll be able to click through. Also, please come to a book tour event where I'll be talking about the book, reading the book. Someone fabulous will interview me. We'll do some other feminist butts and then I will meet you, sign body parts, whatever it is that you want from me. Make a video for your mum. I don't mind. But those events are all around the country. Please come along to one of those. And that's what I've got to plug. (laughs) Juliet, what have you got to plug? I'd like to plug my daughter's show because if she doesn't get funding, I'll have to fund her. So. Right. <laughs> Please.
Please give generously. No. Yeah. Um, no. Well, just tell me one more time. <laughs> Darling, tell them one more time what your what your what the, the funding page is called. It's a GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah, it's on the website. If you just Google "Sounds Like Thunder," thank and you. And the show's called Kidding. It's called Sorry. Kidding. Mm. Sorry about that. But. Kidding. Uh, no, I, I, the show's I, I, called I, Kidding. That's kidding. what you have to look kidding. for in Edinburgh. Yeah. Mm. No, I just want to plug for Amnesty, really, with my ambassadorial hat on. I just would love you all to go to that website and submit those actions. That would be brilliant. And if you're not a member of Amnesty, please join up and do that, because it thrives on having groups all over the country doing their thing. And without you, they can't do what they do so brilliantly. So, yeah, that's my plug. Also, if you are at Latitude, we're doing Suffragettin at one o'clock at the Theatre Tent. Please come along. It's a 45-minute version of it. I'm also doing a part of a play and Q&A called My Mum's a Twat, uh, <laughs> relevantly. Uh, so come and find that as well. That's the 13th of July, the Friday, if you're at Latitude. If you're not at Latitude, please go to the Anti-Trump March. Yeah. I'm heartbroken because they asked me to speak at it, and I desperately have so much to say, but I've already committed to Latitude, so please go on my behalf. There will be a guilty feminist group group there with our sign that says unexplained public laughter disrupts the patriarchy so if you want to be part of the guilty feminist gang who marches just uh follow our twitter at guilt pod and on that also follow our instagram we've got someone running our instagram now nothing happens on it but it will now it's going to be hot all the time so follow me at deborah fw follow at guilt pod and we're the guilty feminist on instagram come and find us there rate review and subscribe and give us five stars for every single episode thank you very much you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Emperor Francis White, guest co-host Cindy B, and our very special guests, Rosalind Brody and Juliet Stevenson. Live music was from Pierre Productions. The recording engineer was Grundy Lazimbra. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Solinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Jessica Norman, Emily Dunnan, and everyone at The Old Vic, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. No, we can't put this out because None of the, us can the men's rights activists will say this is exactly what we say they're like. <laughs> no, no, no. This if you're a men's the... rights activist and you're listening to hate this, we are joking. Massive jokes. I didn't mean any of it. No, it's. I don't all... even have a son. <laughs> good. It's good. That's good. That's good.